and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much for taking this ride with me. Or today, I maybe I should say for taking this sail with me, because my first guest is Carolyn Spencer Brown. She is the Chief Content Officer for Cruise Media LLC. She's also the former editor of Cruise Critic. Hey, Caroline, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. It's so much fun to be back, Pauline. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And it's and you, I think, are the top cruise expert. So I wanted to have you on the show because I, I remember at the heart height of the pandemic, the industry within the industry that was really suffering, which was travel, but the industry within that that I worried might not come back at all was cruising. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, it, there was, it got a huge black eye because you had so many people stranded on cruise ships. You had uh, cruise crews stuck at sea forever. I, I mean, just everything that could go wrong for the cruise industry did at that point. Give us what you think the state of the cruise industry is right now and what have been the steps to to where it is now? I think the state of, of cruise today is probably better than it was even before the pandemic when it was riding quite high. I, I look back at those days um, when things were so rough in the in the beginning of the pandemic when nobody knew what was happening and cruise was so impacted. And the regret I feel among other things, obviously regret for the um, the people who were affected, but Sure. Is that the cruise lines didn't do a great job of telling the stories about what they were trying to do and how they were trying to um, get people home. I mean, I've heard the stories since and they're fascinating. And, and, hmm. and frankly, the fact that anybody in the senior level of a cruise line has any hair left after that um, you know, <laughs> is shocking to me because, because they, they were quite heroic. And I, I wanted to say that because I think that you know the cruise industry did get that black eye, and I don't know that it was deserved. Yeah. Um, but what's happening now is people are are coming back with fervor. I mean, people are there's pent up demand for just about every corner of the globe, and especially for people who love to be out at sea, for being on a ship of some kind, whether it's a small ship, an expedition ship, uh, a big ship, a river ship, whatever kind of ship <laughs> floats your boat. And I apologize for that in advance. Uh, is is really going gangbusters? Going gangbusters, but you know, prices have risen in all parts of the travel industry. But I haven't seen a big shift upward in cruising. Or am I wrong? Am I just looking at the wrong sources? It feels like cruising still has the kind of deals we saw pre-pandemic that you're not seeing in other other sectors of the travel industry. So here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing something kind of different. Um, hmm. When it comes to the big ship lines, you're seeing low fares. But remember that they traditionally, in the last 10, 15 years, generate an absurd amount of revenue from what you spend once you get on board. Ah, so so I see low price. I was checking out a price last week for um, Norwegian Cruise Line to Bermuda. My husband and I are thinking about going. It's a five day trip, or it was a seven day trip from New York. The bottom price was six hundred and twenty nine dollars per person for seven days. That's a that's a wow. very nice um, 
deal for a new ship. Sure. And by the time all the, the free add-ons got added into my thing, into my to my fare, it was $2,300. But how, they're not free add-ons then. What what no, are you so talking about? Say you get a free shore excursion in every port. Well, you know, if you really like to travel and explore those, those that's not worth, that's not worth it. You get sure. um, a free co- cocktail package. What they don't tell you up front is that you're paying 300 and some dollars in gratuities when you buy the cruise. Oh. And I'm like, I'm trying to think if you have a $40, um, if it's worth $40 a day or 50, uh, 20% on top of that would be $10. Let's say, so you're paying $60 a day. You, you're not, you're paying $70 in tips uh, times seven. Wow. And so $300 is just gouging and they offer a free, um, meal at a specialty restaurant, but you know, you might not be able to get into any specialty restaurants cause they're all booked and there's not, not a guarantee guarantee. So I thought that was, and then port taxes. And I, I thought that was just, it was discouraging. I didn't book the cruise. Um, huh. I, I, I just, I don't want to where you're seeing really high prices is in the more inclusive luxury lines and expedition lines. There, there are no bargains there, but right. the other side of it is you're paying for most of everything you're going to spend right up front. So there are right. surprises. And it used to be, uh, and we've made this point before on the travel show, but I'll make it again. It used to be that if you were going to take an expedition cruise, it was going to be a very bare bones experience. You were going to be in some of the most remote, fascinating, gorgeous places on earth, but you might be sleeping in a bunk bed. Nowadays, you have very luxurious ships going to these places. So for a certain type of traveler, that's an improvement. But as you said, the prices are steep. Yeah. And I think the prices are steep even for the, you know, not as steep, but for the the lines that don't pretend to be luxury, where, as you said, bunk beds or your shower is over your toilet. Um, There's been a transformation and it started, gosh, a decade ago or more when a cruise line called Silver Sea actually launched the first ultra luxury expedition ship. And everybody was like, oh, who needs ultra luxury on expedition? You just you just need to be comfortable. But it turns out that people don't want to be less comfortable than they are in their own homes, even huh. on an expedition ship. And and by the way, that is the exploding popular category of cruise at this moment. Everybody wants to go to the polar regions um, yeah. Yeah. Although I, I, you know, I actually was on the new Viking ship. Uh, oh. I didn't sail on it. I just went and toured it while it was in the Harbor in New York. And, and two things struck me. There were, there were some really cool features about it. I mean, my God, they had submarines on board, uh, that, that for, you know, passengers to ride in as well as a laboratory, which they were, uh, working with different, uh, scientific agencies to look at microplastics and warming trends. And that all was really cool. But I would say everybody on that boat looked to be 80 or above. And uh, that was also the boat that got hit by that rogue wave, uh, killing a passenger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so part of me wonders, A, is this so expensive that it's really just going to be people who have are taking their bucket list trips and for the most of for most of us it, it's just going to be out of reach and b 
are these ships well equipped enough? Yes, they're luxury, but that that rogue wave situation—I'd never heard of that happening before to a, a cruise ship of any kind. Or am I just out of it? Is that a common thing? It's not common, but it happens. It happened to a Norwegian ship up off the coast of the Mid Atlantic. Oh, some years back, and um, it broke through some windows, did some damage, and then there was another ship in the in the North Sea that had it happen, and a man got sucked out from the observation lounge, which was on the top of the ship. Oof. It happens. It doesn't have anything to do with a ship not being built well enough. One okay. thing about the polar regions is that the requirements and restrictions are incredible for cruise ships to operate there. They have to prove that that everything they do is up to code. So I, I was in, actually in Antarctica on a different cruise line when that happened. And, uh-huh. um, and, and, and I will say it's, an, it's the first time I'd ever got to go after 30 years and almost 30 years in the business. And it was an incredible trip. It's not a trip for wimps because hmm. you're so active and you're, you're, you're ashore several times a day and you're climbing in and out of Zodiacs and, and, and these, these soft, uh, inflatable boats to get onto the islands. There are no docks, for example, in Antarctica, and and you're hiking and trekking and and seeing penguins and and learning about maritime history. And it's not at all like a cruise in the Caribbean where you kind of lie on the the sunbed all day. It's it's very sure. hardy explorations. And I think what was nice about the Viking ship when I I was on it on a last last year in the spring on a transitional cruise. It wasn't an actual expedition cruise. And what Viking has done very well that nobody else has done is they've made it possible for people who are a little bit older and maybe not as nimble on their feet as they used mm-hmm. to go right. to these regions. Otherwise, you go on this expensive ship and you just watch from the your balcony or something. It, it's, it's so right. I, I'm I give them kudos for that. I think they're opening it up to a group of travelers who may not have gotten there yet and and deserve just as much as a younger person to have the experience. Sure. I guess that was ageism on my part. I, I, I just felt like, you know, as a person of my age, I it just, I got to say it was a turnoff. I, I just didn't want to be on a cruise with everybody being that generation. Uh, I know that's terrible to say, and I love my parents and I love older folks, but I, I, I felt like I would feel like a fish out of water, you know, that I well, would I be the only cruise. person not in their 80s. In my, on my Antarctic cruise, the, I was very surprised at how many young couples there were there huh. who were in their thirties, and young people and young groups of friends and things like that. And I'm like, when I was in my thirties, I could not have afforded that; it wouldn't have been yeah. even on my radar. But they were very young and tr- mostly young and hardy, and even the older folks were were very spry. Um, I I had I had the sympathy. Um, for people because I had my knee replaced and I was really scared when I went to Antarctica, if I could do it. And I was proud yeah. that I did. Um, but I get it that, you know, I, that you may not be able to. And so, that, so yeah. I think that that's important. I think that that's for a certain yeah. traveler. So we've seen a big change in expedition cruising. We're also seeing a sea change. I know we're just <laughs> hitting with those puns today. Uh, we're also seeing a sea change in the destinations that cruise ships are going to. In fact, we chose, I think it was the West Coast of Africa, might have been Southern Africa, for uh, our best places to go in 2023 list. And it made the list because so many cruise ships are going there, really, for the very first time. Uh, this was a, and this is a region or, uh, you know, a continent uh, that's 
hard to travel to sometimes. It takes often several flights. It takes a lot of advanced planning. And yet now you can go to these coastal towns very easily by cruise ship. Uh, can you talk a little bit about African cruising? Yeah. So, so it, I mean, everything you just said is, is a reason why cruising is really popular, especially for your first time to the continent, because I think that uh, Africa is a wonderful place to explore, but it's nice to kind of get a little bit of a tapas bite of a variety of different places to see where you want to come back. And typically we did a cruise. It was a month long cruise. Uh, we did it for our honeymoon. We only took our honeymoon 18 years after we got married. Um, <laughs> Good for you. We went, That's great. Yeah, it was great. And I got off a week early because I'd go back to work. But we, we, we flew from Atlanta to Doha and then overnighted there and then Doha to Durban and started our cruise in Durban. And so we went around the sort of the slightly east south coast of, um, of of South Africa. So it was, it was very South Africa centric. And we went on a mini safari. We got a taste of that. We got a taste of so many different things. Uh, we went to Port Elizabeth and then we went to Cape Town and Cape Town is the magnet. Cape Town is, is where mm. everyone wants to spend time. And that's probably the next place I'd go back and just do a land trip. And yeah, we love that. The, we did the, the, the vineyards. We saw some, you know, what it was like to live there, both on the good and the bad. We climbed up the Table Mountain. It was it was really an experience. All in one day? No, or we were, were you there for days. several days? We were there for three days. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, so that was good. And so we got all the kind of the, the major stuff done. And now I want to go back and get more under the skin of it. But then we went to Namibia, which was incredible. Like with the the the, the sand dunes come down to the ocean, and you climb the, the dunes, and you can sled down the dunes, and it's just and it was fascinating. Huh? We went to this place that hasn't had rain for twenty five years, and yet still things grow, and it reminds you of how life is so. Uh, Wait, before you go on, how do things grow? Is it aquifer water, or what do they do? Yes, they they are very um, they're very. Uh, they're, they're used to it and they know they're very deep in the ground and they can live on very little water. It was, inc- it was incredible. It was, it was, it was really inspiring. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then the interesting part of this cruise and the part of the cruise I wasn't as excited about was we went seven or eight days at sea because as you go up the coast of West Africa, uh, there's, there's, there aren't a whole lot of places they can pull in safely and they're not going to go it because of pirates or what? Oh, just pirates, uh, living conditions, economic conditions, political mm. conditions. Sure. So, and it turned out that that seven days, eight days, whatever it was, it was like the most fun part of the cruise. It was like, we got to go back because it was just us. We weren't working and we got to go back to our days of being kids in camp and we played ping pong every day and we swam and we, <laughs> we watched movies. It was fun. And what, we, what ship was this? Was just Viking. out of curiosity. This was a Viking ship. Uh, uh-huh. I think it was Orion. I should know. Uh-huh. I've been on a lot of Viking ships. Uh, it was Viking Orion, and so it was. It was just a really great experience. And then we went to Senegal, and you know, called in Dakar, and we had a day there, which I would like to go back. Um, but one of the interesting things we learned there is, you know, there were all these new highways and not so many cars. And we said, "Why all the new highways?" And it turns out the Chinese are building them. Um, huh. They're thinking that Senegal is going to be a, a play a great port for them to for you know goods and exports and things like that and imports. Interesting. Um, and then we then we went up to the um, Canary Islands, and that was sort of the end of the Africa part. And that was that was another week to get to London, 
And so, but it was, it was a wonderful first time experience. It, it was wonderful. It was a great. Was it your first time on the African continent? It, well, it was my first time on the Southern part. I've been to Morocco and North Africa. Okay. But sure, it, sure, sure. And you got to see places and you felt safe and yet you got to know where you wanted to come back. Right. So. Right. Interesting. I think Africa is a perfect, I think Asia is another perfect region for people who haven't been there before to cruise, because again, where are the boats going in Asia? What are what oh, are some of the they're going, countries? They're going to Vietnam. They're going to Singapore. They're going to um, India. They're going to um, India. Wow, I'm not sure about India, but they do go to India. I think I, I think they've started up. Um, and it, Asia is just now in the last month opening up again. And so there's a lot of pent up demand and Australia and New Zealand are also just, you know, becoming open again after the pandemic. Right. And so again, there's a lot of pen, pent up demand, not just from the people who live there and want to just get around, but also because it's a great way to see, especially Australia, um, to see Australia's, you know, big cities and big areas because they're all on the coast. Huh. Very interesting. So we've been talking about the good news in cruising. To me, one of the inescapable bad news stories has to do with river cruising. Because of climate change, a lot of the rivers just don't have enough water. And so certain river cruises turn into bus tours. Uh, And I've been uh, speaking at a lot of travel shows lately, and that has been a question I get. I'm interested in doing a river cruise, but I've heard there are water problems. How do I avoid that? Is there advice for that? Yeah, uh, that's a hard one. I, you know, you got to feel for the river lines because this is not on them. This is just climate change. The way of the world. And it's been an issue, but it's not necessarily predictable. So you don't know, like last yeah. summer was, was horrible, uh, was so dry. And right. what I would say is in the beginning of the season, you typically want to be careful of high waters because with the-, with the So when is fall, the beginning of the season? March, Let, April, let's just- March, April. March, April. Okay. And you have the thaw, the spring thaw, and you have the, you know, if, if it's been a, a wet year in the winter, you have the, the snow coming down off the mountains and it can make the, the, the river so high that they flood and that you can't get under the bridges. That hasn't happened as often as the drought has impacted uh, cruise. Hmm. And the drought is especially bad. I'd say it can be, effects can be bad around J- June, July, August. Right. There's no predicting, however. There's no, you know, panacea. There's no, if you go May 7th for seven days, you're in. You'll, you'll have a great cruise. It doesn't work like that. It d- just depends. And I would caution anybody thinking about an early season river cruise this year to check on what the weather's been like in, in Europe and how that might impact the huh. river and the Danube and the rest. Uh, of them. Are there certain regions that have had less problems like maybe avoid the Danube, but do the Douro or. I was just thinking about that as a matter of fact. Yeah. I haven't heard any much at all about the Douro having challenges. So, and that's a lovely experience. It's a very, it's a sleepier experience. Um, but it's, it's, it's charming. It goes out of Porto in Portugal and you fly into Lisbon, fly up to Porto or, or train or whatever. And it, it goes from this lush, you know, Porto's on the Atlantic Ocean and it goes from this kind of lush, t- bustling city. And then it goes, this, this very narrow river goes through these sort of mountains and, and they have, you know, vineyards and port 
port places and port lodges. And, and then it gets to the end, it gets to the, the, the driest part of um, Portugal bordering on Spain. And it's very scrubby and very arid. And it's a really interesting huh. experience. And another, you know, another... Well, but before, before you leave that, why do you call it sleepy? Because it, there aren't... Beyond Porto, which I think is one of the most charming cities in Europe, it's... Yeah. it's it's just villages and small towns huh. and you, and you can't really the thing I didn't love about the, the Duro and I've done it a couple of times is you can't like in Europe, you can get off the ship and ride your bike along the tow paths and walk into cities. There's, you know, especially where it's mountainous and you're right. in a valley, you, there's nowhere to walk. You have to get on a bus hmm. and they take you right. to an attraction. So Interesting. It, that, that part of it is, is a little bit of a challenge. I think if you're very active. Well, I'd read that the Douro just happens to be shallower than most of the other rivers. And so the boats that ply it were built for shallow water. So that may be the, the, what saves the industry. Maybe they have to build more boats uh, like the Douro boats and put them on the Danube and on the main and on the, you know, yeah, other rivers. They still are doing that. So I think that's interesting and curious. Um, I will say about the Douro, one of the fascinating things about the Douro is that one gentleman who's Portuguese uh, builds every line ship. He builds all the ships. He has the rights to all the docks. Um, so you'll see that a lot of the ships are very similar, even though Viking has a different style typically than Ama, than, you know, Uniworld. Um, it's, that's a little, just a little, little nut of insider information. Interesting. That that's kind of reminding me, I, I edited our last uh, river cruising book written by the brilliant Fran Golden. And, uh, she made the point that I think it's with the exception of Tauk and uh, 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 Grand Circle, all of the river cruise companies share the same pool of guides on shore. Mm -hmm. So you could be paying $500 a night and get the same exact cruise as somebody who's paying $250 a night or not cruise, but the exact same sure. land tour. Yeah, land tour. Oh, uh, is that still the case? Yes. 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 It's um, interesting. And they also, a lot of them use the same um, company for onboard hospitality. So the, the, the chef, uh, the entertainment, the <laughs> housekeeping, they all come from outside providers for the, for in many cases, not in every case. Uh, wow! But there's That's... more leeway for the for the cruise lines to you know if they want to spend more money on culinary, they do. You know the the upper sure. you spend more money per passenger on the food. So I gotta say, I gotta ask, and this is a an impolite question: <laughs> Does it ever make sense to book, say, a Uniworld where you're going to pay through the nose, or should you always be going with the cheaper cruise lines? I mean, unless you're a design fan, although. I don't know. For some people, the design of Uniworld is a little too over the top. I, I for one, love the over the top of that. Uh, I think it's <laughs> because I love the atmosphere. Um, yeah. Every, every Okay, Marie Antoinette. Yeah, Good I for am you. Sorry. It's, like, <laughs> it's like going to the Inn at Little Washington for the first time and the only time. And, and, and being really sad when I went there and then I got into my room and it was over the top and crazy. And I, I forgot who I was for one night. It was a good feeling. Huh. Um, but I think, I think you go, you, it's much more important to pick the cruise line for the style. 
Um, obviously, if you can't afford a Uniworld uh, and you love that kind of style, you should still go with a cheaper line. But I think a lot of people pick the lines for the style and they all have a distinctively different onboard feeling. Um, right. And, and that's what you're paying for, I think. Like Emerald is run by Australians. So, you know, they turn on Olivia Newton-John in the nightclub and every, mm-hmm. everyone goes nuts. Um, Uniworld is, I think, very... Uh, very, very over-the-top, glamorous, yes. lots of caviar and champagne. and um, Well, it's been, as always, such a delight speaking with you, Caroline. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Our next guest is another favorite of the travel show. He is Seth Kugel. You may remember him as the frugal traveler columnist for the New York Times. He did that for a long time. He did a great job, such a great job that he is now the tripped up columnist for the New York Times. So Seth, you went from helping us to travel cheaply to bemoaning when things go wrong and trying to help people when when everything goes awry. That almost feels like a, a comment on what it's like to be a traveler today. Well, I will say that I my attitude towards travel has suddenly become a little bit more negative since I get these hundreds of emails of everything that went wrong. But I do have to remember that the millions of people whose trips went great don't write to me. So I'm not sure if things are getting worse or not. But, <laughs> Good. Uh, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. From my perspective, they do look very, it does look that way. <laughs> well, you had a really interesting article recently about something that, that unfortunately I think is pretty common, which is rental car issues. I mean, it's such a common thing that there's a famous scene from the sitcom Seinfeld where he shows up at the rental car counter and they say, sorry, no car for you. Kind of like the soup Nazi. Uh, (laughs) How common is this? Well, it's impossible to know exactly because nobody keeps numbers on this and there's different categories, right? There's the annoying, but not horrible thing when they don't have the size car you want. Um, That gets worse if you have a big family and they only have a small car. Of course, that's a real problem. Um, But a lot of times it's just not what you reserved. You get a different kind of a car. You might get a bigger car than you feel comfortable driving. Okay, that's bad enough. The article is really talking about when they literally don't have any car for you and you're stuck. And, um, you know, it's not something that happens all the time, but it's happened to me. And it, mm. once we put out this article, and I, I couldn't get any hard numbers on it, but once we put out the number, uh, once we put out the article, a bunch of other people wrote into me and said this same thing happened to them. So it's def- it definitely can happen. And the reason is uh, mostly that we have this very strange system in which you can make a reservation without putting down any money or any credit card. So the companies know a bunch of people aren't going to show up. And if they guess right. wrong, that leaves some people without a car. And you pretty much found, I mean, as you said, it's hard to know definitively if you're right about this, but you kind of came to the conclusion that reservations don't matter so much that whoever shows up at the counter first gets the cars. Yeah. Uh, is that is that too cynical? 
Uh, no, I don't think it's too cynical. That's what uh, people, uh, insiders told me. And it makes a lot of sense because the companies want to maximize getting their cars out there. And they probably, uh, the last thing they want to do is tell a walk-up, uh, we don't have a car for you because there's eight people that reserve the last eight cars and then have only five of those people show up. Um, so they're giving away the cars as, as quickly as they can. Now, uh, I asked every company, what can people do to be sure you get a car? Uh, and every company had a different version of, um, 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 well, you could try this. <laughs> but they, yeah. they, no one would really come out and say, look, you know, if you make a reservation, you'll definitely have the car that you reserved or you'll definitely have a car at all. They did say things like, it's incredibly rare that you wouldn't have a car. Or if you don't get a car, we'll find another car for you at one of our partners or something like that. But but those that sort of sort of thing. Or you can wait around for a car. These are not things that you want to have happen when you're just starting out your vacation. Yeah. And, you know, it actually can be a serious issue. When I was in West Virginia uh, a couple of months ago, there was no taxi service. And when I went on Uber, I never got a response back. I waited for 40 minutes, went down to the desk at my hotel, and they said, oh, yeah, the physical therapy students at the at the nearby college sometimes drive Uber, but I think it's, it's a finals going on right now. So you're probably not going to be able to get an Uber. Uh, and, and I was stuck. There was, I had no, literally no way of getting from place to place. So this can be a a big issue. You found out though, that one of the companies is now requiring credit cards and that may end up being a good thing, a credit card with a reservation, I should say. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I'm shocked that it took this long for some company to do this, but it is kind of a bold move on their part. It's Hertz which, you know, honestly, I usually just take whatever's cheapest and it's usually never hurts, but this might make me reconsider. (laughs) You now have to put down a credit card. There's no such thing as the like no money down reservation. I mean, you, you don't have to pay in advance, but you do have to put down a credit card. And that means if you don't show up, you get charged for one day's rental most likely, or that's the most you'd ever be charged. You might not be charged at all, but you might be, and it would be one day's rental. So that hopefully will make people think twice about a practice that a lot of people do now, which makes a lot of sense, which is they make reservations at three different car agencies and Mm -hmm. they just go to whichever one's closest to the terminal or (laughs) whichever one has the shortest line. And then it has the backup bonus of if there's no car available, you just go to the next one. But of course, this is just a crazy way of doing business. It's not really, it's not the way hotels do business. It's not even the way airlines do business. Although you do sometimes get bumped off a flight. They usually like try to give you like a lot of money or a great credit or something like that uh, to reward you. But what uh, seems to happen is if you do get bumped from a credit, from a car rental company, you might get them to help you, but they say they're going to help you. But it seems like in reality, you're kind of out of luck. Well, the people who you helped, because all of your columns are based on real problems. People write you questions and then you try and help that one person. What happened in that case? 
Well, it was Al- Alamo was the company, and uh, but actually Avis was also the company because the woman uh, reserved with Alamo, they didn't have any cars. She got on her phone, tried to reserve with Avis, like down the terminal. I don't know how it's set up in Atlanta, but to another another agency and went there and there were also no cars, even though she was able to make a reservation 10 minutes earlier, which is totally insane. Huh. In any case... Avis actually told me they don't know what happened because there were cars available that day. They have no record of running out of cars. So that's just some sort of employee error or stressed out employee who just said, oh, we can't help you. There's too many people. Or I I really have no idea what happened with Avis. But Alamo did run out of cars. And what they told me is that day they assisted people in getting where they were going and uh, including paying for Ubers. But of course, they didn't pay for an Uber for this woman. So they wrote to her then and offered to pay for her Uber, which was, I think, something like $300. She was going quite a ways. Hmm. You don't mention in this in the article, but would the advice be, you know, years ago, my daughter uh, and her boyfriend, they decided to go do a driving trip to Glacier National Park, and they showed up uh, at the at the airport in Montana and discovered that he was too young to rent a car, but he wasn't, he wasn't too young to rent a U-Haul. <laughs> so oh that's God. what they did. They ended up, and that, because they were camping and there was torrential rains, they ended up sleeping in the U-Haul. So it, it all worked out. Uh, but there are U-Hauls. There are now peer-to-peer sharing services. Um, is this the advice if if it if all goes south with the rental car or or do you think if you just keep going Alamo to Avis to budget to national you'll find you'll usually get a car eventually I mean in all of these cases you'll usually get a car in fact in most cases you'll usually get a car from the place you reserve from but we're not really we don't really care about usually in the this went wrong on my trip and this went wrong with my trip business, right? It's the things that happen right. one out of a hundred times that, that kill your trip. I like the U-Haul option. Uh, it's, it's kind of the opposite of glamping, I guess, to sleep in the back of a of a U-Haul. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I think most most car rental companies say you have to be 25 or over. I think that's their rule. I don't think right. that's the law, um, which is probably why hmm. U-Haul set, allowed it because they just they just game it out differently and don't think it's as dangerous or who knows what. Um, no, there are peer-to-peer uh, car sharing companies. I think Turo is the, the most well-known and the most spread around. I'm, I'm not going to guarantee you they're uh, perfect either. I have had some complaints about them as well. That's a whole other, uh, there's a whole other set of problems there. And I don't know enough about it to say for sure uh, one way or the other, but you can imagine that you're returning a car with no one checking it in most likely. And, you know, something could happen to that car between the time you check it in and you don't get to, you know, verify when, when I go and return a car and they say, oh, it's not full with gas. I like say, look there, it is full. Or if they say there's a dent, I'm like, that dent was there before. Here's the photo I took of it. So I I don't really know how well those companies work, but I'm certainly optimistic. Uh, I had a one experience many years ago, actually, France, had a company like this that was peer to peer, and I rented a car from a wonderful elderly uh, woman. Well, it was actually her daughter's car, but she's the one that was there to give me the keys. And she told me stories about like getting rescued by GIs during World War II. So she loved Americans, oh, and we had a nice exchange there uh, <laughs> about her, like the the GI she was in love with in like 1945 or something like that. Aww. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about that. I think that. 
the the I guess we will eventually be calling them legacy car rental companies will hopefully have to catch up. But it's it's understandable that that they don't want to make you know they don't want. I think people see this as a perk. You can reserve a car, no risk attached. Like and then sure. just don't yeah. show up. So that's obviously something people like. Uh, it's just a question of getting people used to the idea that actually that's not a good system. We want to be sure yeah. we have the car you want that's there. And and the other the last thing I'll say specifically is like when I go in and I usually travel alone, it's usually for work and or at most with one other person, and they say, Oh, we'll give you an upgrade to an SUV. I say, No, I don't want a yeah. big car. You know, and and because I don't want to pay the extra gas. You know, these, these I want a small car with cheaper gas. It's not an upgrade. I call it a downgrade. So yeah. I, I wish that I wish you I wish there I hope that soon people other companies will take Hertz or, you know, follow Hertz's example and we'll have a little bit more of an efficient system. Yeah, well we'll see what happens. And I gotta tell you the funniest coda to the U-Haul story was they they went into Canada and the Canadian border officials were incredibly suspicious of these two young people with an empty truck <laughs> trying to go into and out of the country. They, they like got pulled aside and were grilled for like 40 minutes, but, but it all worked out. Well, I guess, that, you know. Is that the hardest problem the Canadian Border Patrol has? You know, I think they're <laughs> lucky are not on the U.S.-Mexico border. There's a lot more trouble brewing down there for various reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as always, it's been a delight speaking with you, Seth. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. No worries. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. I will be at the LA Travel and Adventure Show this weekend. Uh, so I hope you will come out, come out and see me. I always love to to meet the listeners to this podcast. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you, as always, a hearty bon voyage. Change.